Today's scripture reading comes from Revelations chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to follow along, please do so. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel and to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of his prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is and who was and who will or who is to come, the Almighty. Morning. What child is this? What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch their keeping? Why lies he in such mean a state where ox and ass are feeding? That's a great question, right? What child is this? When this child was born, some shepherds showed up at that little town of Bethlehem to see this baby laying there in the manger with his mother sitting by his side, or perhaps she was holding him in her arms. And they shared with her their excitement about seeing the angel and what he had said to them about this child. But it says, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. What child is this? When he was 12 years old, he went missing in Jerusalem for three days. And his, and his family finally found him in the temple courts, it says, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone heard him, was amazed at his understanding and his answers. What child is this? They wondered. Later in his ministry, he and his disciples were out in the sea in the fishing boat, and you remember the storm blew up. And while Jesus slept, they were terrified, and they thought they were going to drown. And here was Jesus, he was sleeping, so they woke Jesus up, and he rebuked the wind and the waves. Peace, be still, he said. And the wind and the waves obeyed him. The men were amazed, it says, and asked, what kind of a man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Then you remember when the disciples once again were caught in a terrible storm and Jesus came walking out to them on the water. And Peter gets out of the boat and walks to Jesus on the water until he's, he gets afraid and, and he starts sinking. And Jesus reaches out, grabs his hands, lifts them back up, and they walk together back on the water as the storm rages. And it tells us that when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. They had an aha moment. 
Today and tomorrow we celebrate the first advent of Jesus Christ. Born in the little town of Bethlehem, we celebrate Christmas present with all the joy and the merriment that surrounds Christmas. Last week we looked at Christmas past and the eternal covenant that God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit made together the reason for which Jesus came in the first place to redeem mankind. This morning I want us to look at Christmas future and try to answer the question, what child really is this? You know, the first coming of Christ was a veiled coming. Charles Wesley got it right in that amazing hymn, Veiled in Flesh the Godhead See. Hail the incarnate deity. His glory and his majesty were veiled. The next time he comes, he's going to be unveiled. The first time he came, his glory was veiled in his humanity. Peter, James, and John were the only ones that saw a glimpse of the unveiled Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. The rest of the world only saw his humanity. But the next time he comes, the whole world will see his glory and his humanity then will be hidden. Now to really understand the question, what child is this, to get a glimpse of who Jesus Christ really is, we have to see him unveiled. And the best place to see him unveiled is in the book of Revelation. There we find titles and statements made about Jesus that take the veil off and reveal who he really is. In the Old Testament, we see him as an angel of the Lord. In the Gospels, he appears, first of all, as an infant, and then as a 12-year-old child, and as a man, and then a miracle-working preacher, and then a suffering Savior, and then, then a risen conqueror of death itself. In the Epistles, he's presented as a teacher, as a mediator, as a shepherd, as a bridegroom, as a head of the church, and as a great high priest. All of those are true of him. All of those add to the dimensions of his glory. But some of the most vivid and stunning portraits of the unveiled Christ are those found in the book of Revelation. In fact, if you look at the very first verse of the book of Revelation, the very first phrase says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the great reveal. This is the unveiling of the Son of God. You know, there's only one reference in uh, Revelation to the birth of Christ. That's actually in chapter 12, verse 5, where it says, She gave birth to a son, a male child, and then immediately is followed with these words, Who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter? That's the great theme of the whole book of Revelation. This is his triumphant return. This is his second advent, if you will, when he comes as sovereign king Lord and judge. What child is this? Well, to find out, we're going to do a quick run-through of the book of Revelations. We're going to go through quickly, so we need you to be listening quickly. The first aspect that is revealed is in chapter 1, verse 5. Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. The faithful witness is one who always speaks accurately and truthfully, one who always gives the facts. That's what a faithful witness does, right? Giving perfect testimony. And the testimony of Jesus Christ that, uh, that he gives to God, to man, to sin, to righteousness, to judgment, to salvation, to heaven, hell, death, and life, 
The testimony that he gives to anything and everything on which he speaks is absolutely faithful. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 14, he is called the amen, the faithful and true witness. Amen means so let it be. If he says it, then that's how it is. In John 18, verse 37, he said, The reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. In a world of lies, under the control of Satan, the father of lies, we can trust everything that Jesus says. He cannot lie. He is God, and God cannot lie. So this means that from the very beginning of this book of judgment and reward, we can be sure that every judgment and every reward is based on faithful testimony to the facts. What child is this? He is the faithful witness. Secondly, in that same verse, he is the firstborn from the dead. It doesn't mean that he's the first person ever to be raised from the dead. Uh, as we know, there are a number of instances of people being raised from the dead in Scripture, uh, all the way back in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. The firstborn here is the Greek word pro, uh, prototokos, referring to the primary one, the preeminent one. It's not first chronology-wise. It's the first in terms of preeminence, the most important. Rank is the issue here. He is number one. Back in Psalm 89, verse 27, speaking about the Messiah, God himself says, I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. So as the prototokos, as the firstborn, he is given the right of the firstborn to inherit, to possess the full estate of the father. So what child is this? He is God's firstborn, the preeminent one who will inherit the entire possession of God. That brings us to a third title in that same verse. He's called the ruler of the kings of the earth. And it means just that. He is a supreme ruler. Since he is God's preeminent son, God will make, make him ruler over all the rulers. He is the absolute sovereign over the rulers and all the affairs of the entire world. And this is all actually unfolds in chapter 5. If you look into chapter 5 of Revelation, we have a scene starting in verse 1 that John, John sees this vision. And God's sitting on the throne, and in his right hand is a scroll. And this scroll is sealed with seven seals. When people made a will back in the day, they'd roll it up in a scroll and they'd seal it. So it could not be opened by someone without you knowing it. And the only person that was worthy or had the right to open it was the heir. So this scroll is in God's hand. It's sealed seven times, a perfect seal. The scroll is a title deed to the universe. And right now there is a usurper to that title. He's called the prince of the power of air. He's called the ruler of the darkness of this world. It's Satan who is the god of this world. He is in control. But the title deed to it is in the hand of God in this vision. Then John said, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who has a right? Who has the authority? Who has a privilege? Who is preeminent enough? Who ranks high enough to go and take that title of the universe out of the hand of God? Who is God's heir? Verse 3, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll and even look inside it. No one had that right. No one had that privilege. And John says in verse 4, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. 
Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and his seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He went and and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, and they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation." Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and praise. He alone had that right and he was worthy to take the scroll and take, it, take back the universe from the usurper. That right belongs only to the one who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. So what child is this? He is a ruler the kings of the earth, the one who, has absolute, who is absolute sovereign, the one who, whose name is above every name and at whose name every knee shall bow. If we go to verse 8 of chapter 1, we find a fourth title given to Jesus, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Now, Alpha, of course, is the first letter of the Greek al- alphabet. Uh, there are 24 letters. Omega is the last letter of the alphabet. But what does it mean to say he is the first letter and the last letter? Now, usually we just say, well, it just means that he's the beginning and the ending of all things. He's a starter and finisher, and that's all true. But I think there's more to that. This is about letters. This is about the alphabet. Listen, between Alpha and Omega, there are 22 Greek letters. That makes sense, right? 24 in total. By using those 24 letters, all words can be formed. Therefore, all truth can be communicated Every thought that comes can be, can be coming from those, those letters. All truth can be conveyed. All wisdom can be articulated. What did Jesus say about himself? I am the truth. And he could articulate all that truth by using Alpha to Omega. When he was ministering on earth, the educated religious leaders mocked that knowledge. They said, can anyone... Anything come, uh, anything good come out of Nazareth? He's a Galilean, an uneducated man. He hasn't been to the right schools. They scorned his teaching and rejected his knowledge. <laughs> Big mistake. Big mistake. The next time he comes, his perfect, supreme, vast, impenetrable knowledge will be on display for all to see. He will perfectly fulfill everything he ever said he would do. He is omniscient, all-knowing. Every truth he ever articulated will come into clarity at the end. So what child is this? He is a word from beginning to end. He's also described in verse 8 as the eternal one, the one who is and who was and who is to come. This speaks of his eternality. Theologians call it his aseity. I looked that up. (laughs) The dictionary defines aseity as the mode of being of that which is underived from anything else. Independent existence. Existence by self-origination. That pretty well describes Jesus' self-existence, does it not? which is clearly described in John chapter 1 as well. He always was, 
He always will be. He's not defined by time. He's not defined by space. He's not confined by time or space. He's not influenced by any creative reality or historical event. There are no external circumstances which shape him or shape his thoughts. He is the one eternal, self-existent, transcendent one. How, how many ways are there, there to describe it? He has control over space and time and energy and matter, over eternity as well. He is above and beyond. What child is this? He is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. He is eternal. And as if that's not enough, the end of that same verse, verse 8, He is the Almighty. This speaks to His omnipotence. He has all power. In other words, there is no power that He doesn't possess. There is no power beyond His power. He is the Almighty. And because He possesses all power, no one can hinder Him. Nothing can hinder Him. No person, no event, no collection of people. Uh, no one can thwart Him. No one can hinder Him. No one can alter His plans. No one can pre prevent Him from doing what He wills to do and fulfilling what He promises to do. At His first advent, He subjected Himself to the power of men who beat Him and who murdered Him. At His second advent, He will come with all power, and He will destroy His enemies, and He will do it with a word out of His mouth, and He will create a new heaven and a new earth. What child is this? He is the Almighty. That's an expression, obviously, of his deity. In the Old Testament, God was always referred to as the Almighty. Going down to verse 17, he says at the end of, uh, end of the verse, I am the first and the last. Now, this is where he's talking about beginnings and ending historically. Then he says in verse 18, I am the living one. I, I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. He's saying, I control life. And I control death. That's what the first and the last means here. I decide who lives and I decide who dies. I, I decide when people live and when they die. And not only that, I decide what happens to them when they die. What child is this? He is the first and the last. The buck stops with him. He is in total control of life and death and the afterlife. And folks, there is an afterlife. In chapter 2, verse 1, he introduces himself as a Lord over his church. Listen, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What's he saying here? This is a section of Revelation in chapter 2 and 3, if, if you go, go back to read sometime, where he's giving a message to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And in the last verse of chapter 1, verse 20, he says very plainly, the seven stars are the agalos, we'll come to that in a minute, are the agalos of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The word agalos in Greek literally means messengers. It's usually used of heavenly messengers, as in angels. But it's also used for earthly messengers who are bearing a divine message. Anyone who is bearing a message for God could be an agalos, a messenger of God. And what he's saying is, I hold the ministers of my true church in my hand. Isn't that good? I'm so glad he does. 
And the seven lampstands, which he says are the seven churches, he says, I'm walking in and among them. Why seven? Because seven is the number of completion from the creation onwards. And each of these churches is symbolic of the kind of churches that exist throughout history. And what he's saying here is that I am Lord over my church. The world doesn't understand that yet, the fact that he is Lord over the church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The world keeps trying to do that. If you went back to read chapters 2 and 3, John sees this vision of these seven lampstands representing the churches and Christ moving among those lampstands. And he appears there as a priest interceding for them because he's dressed in the garments of a high priest. He appears as a purifier of his church because his hair is white like white wool, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet are burning like burnished bronze made to glow in a furnace. And this is, in, this is him in his church with penetrating vision and wisdom, seeing what needs to be dealt with. Judgment begins in the house of God. He needs to purify his own people. John sees him speaking to the church, and when he does, he says that his voice is like a crashing of many waters on the rocks. You've heard that sound. And in his hand is a sharp two-edged sword with which he convicts and protects the church. He is the living, exalted Christ moving in his true church, doing his work of empowering, interceding, purifying, speaking, and protecting. What child is this? This is the unveiled Christ, the glorious head of the church. Moving into chapter 3, verse 1, he refers to himself with another title. These are the words of him who holds the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. Now, some translations say it's the seven spirits of God. That's, that's unfortunate. It's confusing because we know there, there's one Holy Spirit. Rather, as one commentator puts it, the Holy Spirit is revealed in sevenfold beauty. And we find that sevenfold beauty in this 11th chapter of Isaiah, verses 1 and 2. This is a, prophe this is a prophecy about the coming of, of Christ, coming of the Messiah. Listen, as the Holy Spirit is, is described in seven ways. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. Speaking about the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord, number one, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of might the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Again, seven, sevenfold. The completeness of the Holy Spirit is fully upon Christ. He is the one, it says there in Revelation 3, who has that sevenfold spirit of God. Therefore, he is fully empowered by the Holy Spirit. What child is this? He is the one who possesses the fullness of the Holy Spirit. There's a tenth description in chapter 3, verse 7. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. What does that mean? He is holy. He is pure. He doesn't make a mistake. He is true. He is without error. And without confusion, he is absolutely holy and he is absolutely true. And because of that, he holds the keys, the key of David. What does that mean? It means that he possesses sovereign authority over the kingdom of salvation. You see, the kingdom initially refers to the kingdom that was promised to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
But now it's being fulfilled by Christ referring to the kingdom of salvation. It's the kingdom Jesus preached about, the kingdom of God. Only a king has the key to the kingdom, and Jesus has that key. He alone has a key to open the door of salvation and eternal blessing. If you wanted to be saved, who do you ask? You ask him. He's got the key. He is the only key holder to the kingdom of salvation. So what child is this? He is holy. He is, he is true. In fact, he is the way. He is the truth. And yes, he is the life. If we go to chapter 3, verse 14, it describes him as the beginning of the creation of God. The beginning of the creation of God. The beginning, the Greek word arche, not only means the beginning, but the source the origin. This is where his role as creator is clearly indicated. This, of course, was already stated back in John chapter 1. You know those verses well. In the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, talking about God's creation, and without him, nothing was made that was made. He is the creator. In Revelation 22, verse 13, last chapter of Revelation, he says he is the beginning and the end. He's the beginning of creation. He's the end, the consummation of creation. And in Colossians 1, as we've studied earlier, says that nothing was created without him. And when he returns at his second advent, it'll be crystal clear that he is the creator. Because when his feet touch the Mount of Olives... Oh my goodness, he will create a valley, he'll create a river that'll flood the desert and create a garden out of it. Then he'll, he'll restore, rejuvenate, recreate the planet back to what it was before the fall. It'll become like another Garden of Eden. And, 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 pro, uh, and the prophets say that wolves will lie down with a lamb and children will play in snake pits. Natural enemies in the animal world will no longer be natural enemies. And it says if somebody dies at 100, they die an infant. (laughs) Life will be extended like it was before the flood. He'll recreate the world for a thousand-year millennial reign. And as believers, we'll all be there. Because after we've been raptured and after the tribulation period, we're all coming back with Him to reign with Him for a thousand years. Amen. What What child is this? He is the beginning of the creation of God. We find another title for him in chapter 5, verse 5. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, it says. That title actually comes from Genesis chapter 49. In verses 8 to 10, the the tribe of Judah is is described as a lion. The tribe of Judah was, was fierce. They were strong. Warriors came from the tribe of Judah. In fact, when the tribes of Judah split, and you remember ten, ten of those tribes went north and created the, uh, the kingdom of Israel while Judah remained in the south, Judah was strong enough to survive a lot longer than the whole northern kingdom all by themselves. Judah was lion-like, and the Messiah was going to come from Judah, from the lion, uh, from the lion of David. Because that same prophecy in Genesis 49 says, a scepter will not depart from Judah all the way to the coming of Messiah, and then it will be in his hand. He will come with a scepter, and he will come like a lion. He didn't come the first time like a lion. He came as a lamb. 
But at his second advent, he will come as a lion and devour his enemies across the globe, both in the physical and the spiritual realm. What child is this? He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Verse 5 also says that he is the root of David. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Now we know that he's the son of David. We, we talk about that a lot. But he's also the root of David. What does that mean? Well, very simply put, he is the creator of David, as well as the son of David. He is a descendant from the line of David, both Matthew and Luke in their genealogies. They prove the genealogies on the human level of Jesus coming from the line of, da- uh, line of David. Even Paul in Romans 1.3 tells us that as to his earthly life, he was a descendant of David. So he is worthy to take the scroll on the human level because he is a descendant of David, the, the, kingly, the, the, the kingly line. But he is also worthy to take the scroll on the divine level because he is also the root of David. This refers to the fact that he is God who created David. Therefore, as a unique God-man, he has both the divine authority and the human authority to open the seals. So cool. If you look at the whole uh, of verse 5, it says, Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's his human genealogy. The root of David. That's the divine genealogy. Both put together has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Scripture is amazing. What child is this? He has full authority, both as God, the creator of David, and man as the son of David. Then jumping over to chapter 19. Here John has a vision and heaven opens up. He sees a white horse coming. He sees a white horse coming and says, And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes wars. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. This is an amazing picture. He's called faithful and true. He's faithful because he's coming as he said he would. And he's true because he's coming to do what he said he would do. He's no longer on a donkey or the foal of a donkey coming in peace. He's riding a white horse. He's riding a white horse, a symbol of a conquering general. And and he comes as a triumphant final conqueror and was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Listen to Isaiah chapter 63, very descriptive description of this. It foresees this event. Isaiah 63, starting with verse 1, Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained in crimson? Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, Jesus responds, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance, the year for me to redeem had come. What child is this? Not the meek and mild little baby that we celebrate at Christmas, rather the unveiled Christ coming in judgment. Verse 13 goes on to call him the Word of God. 
He is God's most pure, complete revelation. People say, what's, what's God like? What's Jesus like? Read Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. He is full of mercy and grace and love. He is faithful and He is true. He is righteous. And in the end, because He is righteous and faithful and true, He also judges and makes war. He's furious. He's devastating. And no one can stand against Him. He is God's most pure revelation. In fact, Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of His being. What child is this? He is the Word of God, God's complete revelation. And then down in verse 16 we read, On His robe and on His thigh He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The title of absolute, total, complete sovereignty. He is the Lord of Lord. No one in power or prominence or influence will be able to withstand him. And when he arrives, he will destroy all other rulers who have resisted him. The victory is already determined. The Antichrist in verse 20 is seized. The false prophet is seized. And they're thrown into the lake of fire and, and burn uh, with brimstone, and all the rest of the gathered armies of the world and all their rulers are killed with a sword, and I'm quoting, killed with a sword which came from his mouth. What's the sword that came from his mouth? It's his word. It's his word. His word brought them into existence. Uh, into existence. His word will take them out. And in chapter 20, as king of kings and lord of lords, he's not only the ruler over the powers of men, he's ruler over the power of demons. So he takes Satan himself, throws a chain on him and all those who are with him and, and binds them. And in verse 10 says that he throws them into the lake of fire and brimstone to be tormented forever. And Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 that Jesus will overthrow the lawless one with the breath of his mouth. Boom. And then as king of kings and lord of lords, he holds a judgment in verse 11, the great white throne judgment. Everyone is judged. And those who fail to trust in him and receive salvation, verse 15 tells, tells us, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Along with the false prophet, along with the Antichrist, along with Satan and all his demonic beings. What child is this? This is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And if we look at the last chapter of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. And he repeats, I am the root and the offspring of David. And then he adds, and the bright morning star. Now, among the Jews, to call someone a star is the highest comment that they can give to somebody. But it was reserved. You know, our society foolishly calls all kinds of people stars, superstars. Movies, music, sports. And they all become so arrogant, think that they're all that. <laughs> and they're not. You know who the real star is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He said, I am the bright morning star. What does that mean? You know, in our physical world, what is our bright morning star? 
It's the sun that rises in the east. It rises in the morning. It gives light to the whole world. This is what the phrase is referring to in the spiritual realm. Jesus Christ is our light. In fact, Romans, excuse me, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, prophesies the coming of the light. It says, a star will come out of Jacob. It says, Abraham, Jacob, tribe of Judah, son of David, a star will come. And what is that light? It's not just brightness. It refers to the righteousness of God. In fact, Malachi chapter two, uh, 4, verse 2, we read, But for you who revere my name, the Son, S-U-N, not S-O-N, interestingly, the Son, S-U-N, the Son of righteousness will, will rise with healing in its rays. Christ came to shed the light of righteousness to, to dispel the darkness in our lives. Peter refers to this as well in his second letter, Chapter 1, verse 19, he writes, A light shining in a dark place until the day dawns, and the morning star does what? It rises in your heart, dispelling the darkness. When we trust Jesus, his light of righteousness dawns in our heart, and it chases out the darkness. We know that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then in in Matthew 5, 14, he says, Now you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men. In fact, Daniel, Daniel tells us that we have, let me put the emphasis differently, that we have become stars. I don't know if you remember this verse. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. What's the brightness of the heavens? It's all the stars. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. How cool is that? What child is this? He's a bright morning star from whom we've received light, and we are now stars to lead others to righteousness. But of all the titles, of all the titles that Jesus bears in the book of Revelation, as you can see, there are numerous There is one that is the most common, and it's repeated over and over and over again in Revelation. I've saved it for the last. Can you guess what that might be? Oh, there it is. (laughs) It's the Lamb. He is the Lamb. Why? Because in order to be all these other things that we've been talking about, to accomplish all of His other purposes, He had to be the Lamb of God. Slain. He had to fill his part of that eternal covenant. In chapter 5, we see the Lamb standing who had been slain. And they're all saying, Worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb. In chapter 6, we see the Lamb breaking seals. In chapter 7, they say, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Chapter 8, the Lamb breaks the seventh seal. Chapter 12, a loud voice in heaven is saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have have come, and they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb. Chapter 13, He is a Lamb slain from before the foundation of the earth. In chapter 14, John in his vision says, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on, the Mount, uh, on, on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. 
Those 144,000 refer to the Jews Christ has chosen to evangelize during the time of the tribulation. And it says in verse 4, they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. In chapter 15, they were singing a song of the Lamb, a song of praise, worthy. Chapter 17, the enemies of Christ came and waged war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Chapter 19, verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made himself ready, herself ready. Chapter 21, it says, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Always the Lamb. Chapter 22, last chapter, verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His slaves will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. What child is this? He is the Lamb. Ever ask yourself, well, how can He be both a lion and a lamb? As a lion, he comes to devour and destroy forever Satan and all who belong to him. But to us, to us who have been redeemed, he will always be the lamb. He will always be the lamb because he came to take away the sins of the world. This is Christmas future. And aren't we glad this morning that among all those things that he is as unveiled Christ, he's still the lamb. He's still the lamb. He will always be the lamb. The lamb of God, John the Baptist said, who takes away what? Takes away the sins of the world. This morning as we come to a close, this is a question I want to ask. Has he taken away your sin? Has he taken away your sin? Forgiveness is still available for a time. His sacrifice is still effective for now. But there's coming a day, and it may be very, very soon, that Jesus is returning. And only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb's book of life, will be taken if you've never made that decision to accept Christ, if you've never asked him to ask him for his forgiveness and to be part of his kingdom, won't you do that this morning and accept his forgiveness before it's too late? Before it's too late. It is appointed unto man to die once. And let's face judgment. Period. End of story. Are you ready? Are you ready? What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Oh, this is the unveiled baby in the manger. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have given us a glimpse of who Jesus Christ is unveiled. The power and the majesty we see this little baby. Babies are, th- are considered weak and, and, and uh, 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 unable to do anything, helpless. But you look at that baby, and he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the Lamb. He's the Lion of Judah. He is the truth, 
Father, I pray that if there is one this morning that has not accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord, that they would do it today. Because we know Scripture does not lie. Scripture tells us that Jesus is coming soon. We're looking forward to that day, but Father, we don't want loved ones to be left behind. Your sacrifice is still available. Father, thank you for your love. Touch our hearts this morning. Let us celebrate, not just the baby, but let us celebrate the unveiled Christ throughout this next week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.